Hello and welcome back to the Psychedelics in Medicine podcast, where we discuss the future of psychedelic and alternative drug therapy with leading academics at the top of their field in all things scientific. Last week we had a lovely discussion about LSD, its synthesis and initial discovery by Albert Hoffman, its stigma and studies conducted in the early 60s, and then onto its pharmacology and neurobiology before taking a look into the literature to discuss a study conducted on LSD-assisted psychotherapy for end-of-life-associated anxiety. This week we will continue deeper into the world of psychedelics, however looking at the effects in smaller doses, all about microdosing. Hello, I'm Ben Clayden, student at the University of York studying natural sciences specialising into neuroscience. I'm also the president of my university's Psychedelics in Medicine Society. Today, I'm once again with Dr. Torsten Passi. Dr. Passi is a German psychiatrist, professor at Hanover Medical School, and is an expert in altered states of consciousness. Torsten has performed clinical and experimental studies with numerous psychoactive and psychedelic compounds, including LSD, psilocybin, laughing gas, MDMA, and ketamine, and has published multiple books on psychedelics and intactogens. In 2019, Torsten published The Science of Microdosing Psychedelics, a comprehensive review of scientific data, where he reveals the rich and little-known history of research with micro- and low-level dose psychedelics. The over 200-page book has been revised and recommended by David Nichols, the leading LSD scientist, and leading microdosing expert James Fadiman. Welcome back to the show, Torsten. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Right. As always, we have a lot to get into, but to start off with, are you able to give us a little bit of the history when it comes to microdosing and its involvement within the therapeutic and medical industries? Yeah, okay. So in respect to the history of microdosing, there is much more to be known than it is known right now. And um, to begin with, uh, we have not very much evidence virtually zero that uh, indigenous tribes or so have used microdoses in their rituals. However, there is a Mexican um, a tribe in northern Mexico which has used very low doses of a mescaline containing cacti um, for making them better runners because it also con the cactus contains also some amphetamines and so they have used very low doses of these amphetamines in combination with mescaline uh, to make them better runners. So that's, to my eyes, the only evidence I've found in respect to indigenous people microdosing or taking low doses. However, then uh, you might know that the um, LSD discoverer Albert Hofmann took his first trip in his laboratory, his first intentional trip in his laboratory, and it was a dose of 250 mics, a very low dose thought at that point of time, because no other medications were active in that range, but it was in fact a high dose of LSD or a higher dose, 250 mics. So when he uh, felt the first effects, he was becoming anxious that he might go crazy um, forever. And so he panicked and was driving home with his bike. And um, during that uh, ride, he also became very anxious and irritated and psychotic, kind of, so that he called up the physician when he was at home, uh, being very much in, in anger, uh, in uh, being very much anxious, 
about um, his state and that he might never come back and stuff like that. So the physician came, nothing was wrong, but Hoffman felt so bad during that trip that we could say in retrospect, it was a horror trip. And therefore he communicated that result to other researchers, which, uh, which were interested in LSD, but they, because of his initial high dose trip, they used very low doses. So the first systematic study at the University of Zurich in the mid 1940s um, was uh, going on with 10, 20, 30 and 50 micrograms, not higher doses. And they have found some significant effects, especially in respect to psychotherapeutically relevant phenomena like regressions, uh, upcoming of memories, intensification of emotions, mood changes, thought alterations, uh, alterations of associations and so on. So that this very low dose study became the initial ignition of the therapeutic use of LSD because of uh, these phenomena appearing in these uh, experimental series. Uh, so uh, this was the beginning of, if you want, microdosing or mini dosing in a way, but it wasn't intended to be for that purpose. The next um, uh, time uh, I came across microdosing was with a German psychiatrist who cooperated closely with Albert Hofmann. Um, and um, he was treating um, patients with lower doses of LSD in the range of 50 to 100 mics. But what he did is he gave to some of his patients that was published in his publications, he gave to some of his patients doses of 10 or 20 micrograms to take at home and see what will happen and that they might get better or might get a little bit more, how should I say, a little bit more soft so that psychotherapy can gain more uh, impact, so to say. That was his idea behind it. And what he found is that uh, a very few of his patients kind of got better from his view, this was not a placebo-controlled controlled study, but it was interesting that we reported these results. So the next study was going on with the American, American military. So why did they test so low doses, you could say? But interestingly enough, you might know that the um, CIA, as well as the American military, they were out for um, interrogation drugs so that people may be uh, weakened in their willpower so that they can extract more information, information from them. That was one goal. The other goal of the CIA and the US Army was how can we inebriate a mass population by spraying, for example, LSD as an aerosol over a city and making people unable to fight. And in I guess, my best guess is that the American army also did these microdosing experiments to find out what will happen to a person which has a closed door and a closed window at the point when the spraying was going on over the city. So what happens to people which just have absorbed very little amounts? They also have to think about that. We know what happens to a soldier. You can look that at YouTube. If you put in uh, soldier and LSD, you will find some crazy going soldiers, which kind of climb up trees and talk to the birds and stuff like that. So they go really crazy with higher doses and can't follow commands 
anymore and so on. But what happens to a person who has just absorbed a little tiny amount? Is he also going crazy? Is he also pushing the wrong buttons? Is he also confused? Or can he act even better, for example? Could be also a possibility in that low dose range. What they have found is in a methodologically not really good study, but they were really putting effort into doing a kind of control study. But what they have found is that your pupil diameter will change even with eight mics, what suggests that there is a cert certain impact on the body in these very low doses. In respect to psychological reactions, they came to the conclusion that below 50, 15 micrograms, the people can't really tell if it is placebo or not. So 20 mics may be a uh, threshold dose for LSD, for example. With psilocybin, it's more around three milligrams, the, uh, this dose. Yeah, uh, these were the experiments by the army. No, it's not complete because there is a rather unknown trial which has been conducted in the army chemical trial center and what the Czech chemical warfare center. And what they have done is they gave the people 35 micrograms and let them play chess. But they, what they found is that uh, there were some people without any change in respect to their chess playing, but most of them were getting lower um, uh, results with the LSD in their blood or in their hand. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah. And then uh, there were a lot of very low dose experiments for experimental reasons during the late 1950s until the end of the 60s. Uh, these results uh, and studies uh, in respect to outlining uh, the studies and so on can be found in my book in a very detailed fashion. Uh, these uh, studies have been mostly conducted in the range of 25 to 50 micrograms, and virtually all of them have found deficits in respect to a measured normal performance in respect to reaction time, uh, visual attention span, and stuff like that, and verbal memory, and so on. They found all decrements instead of uh, better performance or so on. Just uh, one aspect, which is a more primitive cognitive and neurocognitive measure, which is kind of reaction time and psychomotor performance can in some people be enhanced by a very low dose of LSD, but just by some and in an irregular fashion and on very artificial measures. Yeah? Otherwise you only find so-called deficits. We have to mention that if we try to measure a reaction to LSD, it's not uh, completely appropriate to use a measure which is, uh, has been created for the normal state of consciousness, the sober state. So you have to spe specify your methods of measurements in respect to uh, altered states of this kind. So uh, the research might have failed also because in a, uh, because of inappropriate measurements and instruments. Uh, we, could no. also, uh, we could also, sorry, Ben, 
we could also mention the most recent research into microdosing. Uh, when uh, Jim Fadiman published his uh, book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guides, a few years ago, where he had a chapter in there where he's discussing very low doses of psychedelics because he had heard about it, especially that Albert Hofmann, the discoverer of LSD, might have used lower doses in his exper personal experimentation. And therefore, he became aware of the matter and published that book. And since then, a lot was going on in respect to research and evaluation of microdosing and taking microdoses. I just want to mention here as the last point that uh, the claim has been made that uh, microdosing was kind of discovered or created by people in the Silicon Valley in the US. Uh, what I can say from my comprehensive research about the facts and the history and the background of microdosing, there's zero evidence that it came from Silicon Valley. There's no interview, there's no person stating that. It's just a legend. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that's awesome. Right. Now, um, as you said, the effects of microdosing uh, compared to full doses are vastly different. Uh, however, on a molecular level, you are ingesting the same substance. So are you able to give us a little bit of an understanding about the neurobiology of microdosing psychedelics? Yeah, sure. It's a complex matter because uh, if you take, uh, for example, let's say one milligram of e ibuprofene, yeah, nothing will happen in the organism and you will have even as a uh, toxicologist with very fine-grained instruments, you will having a hard time to find out if there is any alteration there. And so therefore it's a complex matter um, and not so easy to really find something. What they have done more recently is uh, they have those people in placebo-controlled methodologically sound studies with lower or even microdoses below 10 micrograms of LSD, for example. And they have found, in some cases, very, very mild subjective effects so that the people could just register something is going on there kind of that. They didn't report better performance or loads of creativity or loosening of their inner boundaries or stuff like that. No, they don't. So uh, what they have found is very, very mild, subtle subjective effects with very low doses. And in respect to neurobiological neurobiolo uh, findings, um, they have found in older studies alterations of some hormones, for example, adrenaline and stuff like that. Uh, but these uh, results have to be confirmed to my eyes. And uh, the study by Berchardt et al. Uh, has uh, looked out for changes in the cerebral blood flow in the brain. And what they have found is very little kind of alterations in respect to some areas to be affected by very low doses of LSD. But you have to think about these changes not easily in respect to, oh, they are significant in comparison to placebo. That might be true, but the changes might be so subtle that nothing has happened to the organism, in fact. An example could be if you go for, uh, for shopping and you have a cart in front of you, right? So if you are coming across another cart, you might just touch him a little bit and he may not move because of that. If you touch the other cart a little bit more, it moves somewhat, 
not very much. If you really throw it, you know, then it would go far. So the high dose might be the throwing of the car. A lower dose might be touching it a little bit and giving something. A micro dose might be there, but don't do anything. And this is what science is suggesting. And we, what we can state is that in respect to biological as well as psychological effects, uh, the scientific evidence gained up to now is just showing the basic laws of pharmacology, which is large dose, large effect, low dose, low effect, small dose, small effects, tiny dose, tiny effects. And this is what they have found in the studies. So there is no contradiction, no wonder around. Fantastic. That was a brilliant analogy uh, with the carts. Awesome. Right. Um... <laughs> is it right that it is called the cart? Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. I wasn't yeah, was sure about that. <laughs> that was brilliant. Right. Um, so when discussing microdosing, it's common to hear the placebo effect being thrown around. So to begin with, I'd like to take a look at a recent study out of Imperial College London by Ballard Zagetti, uh, David Nutt, Robert Carhart-Harris and others uh, titled Self-Blinding Citizen Science to Explore Psychedelic Microdosing. I'll just do a quick outline of the study before I ask you some questions about it, Torsten. Participants, which were blinded, were put into three groups, a placebo group, a half-half group or a microdosing group. A weekly package would be sent to the participants with four pills that all looked identical, each labelled with the day they should be taken. For example, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday. If someone had been placed into the placebo group, they would be given four placebo pills a week for four weeks straight. Whereas someone in the microdosing group would receive a package eat wheat with four pills, each dated two. However, two of those pills would contain a microdose instead of the placebo. In this study, the placebo was an empty pill that looked identical to the microdose capsule. The participant size was 191, making it the largest placebo-controlled study on psychedelics to date, and the measurements recorded were acute scales in emotional state, energy and creativity, as well as post-acute scales in anxiety. So Torsten, are you able to give us an overview of the findings of this study? Yeah, uh, this was really an interesting study because these guys are really smart to my eyes because they designed a study which can be conducted at home by people which are interested in microdosing. So the problem of a biased population, so a selected population, self-selected population of uh, experimental subject, that problem has not been eliminated. So it might be true that much more uh, microdosing aficionados, so to say, might participate in such a study than somebody who is not really confirmed about these effects. However, what they did is they instructed the people to do a self-blinding study and uh, uh, to prove if there is any impact of a microdose given on a weekly basis I mean, a few times a week uh, on your subjective state. And what they have found is that there is no evidence from this study in respect to measures of creativity, in, re in respect to measures of mood, and as mentioned by Ben, uh, in respect to measures of anxiety in a subacute form. It means uh, they have measured that a few days after the microdose. And even then, there was no difference 
in respect to placebo uh, or the no dose to the low dose, so to say. And therefore, these guys became quite skeptical that really very low doses uh, might have an impact on the psyche and um, on a psychological functioning as well as uh, psychological uh, symptoms like anxiety. Yeah, I congratulate these guys because it was really a very smart idea and it wasn't really completely controlled as in a usual scientific experiment, but it had a lot of control, placebo control in it. And so congratulations also about the result because that is very consistent with which, uh, what uh, science would have expected from the experiences in the past. Brilliant, thank you. And I think we will delve a little bit more into the methods and a couple of the limitations of this study later on. But as you said, it's a really quite ingenious method to allow for a much larger sample size. And I think we all know that the effect sizes and the sample sizes are absolutely massive, especially when we are so used to seeing psychedelic studies with around 10 people in them. So 191 yeah. is a really brilliant yeah. thing to look up to. It's, yeah, it's not so easy that you um, can really estimate the reliability of your subjects because you don't know them <laughs> in person. You can't control what they're doing on their desk. And so therefore, yeah, I might be a little doubt left about that. Yeah. yeah, very true, very true. Um, well, I think we ought to have a look at another paper and then we will discuss the two in unison. Um, and for this one, we're going to look at another study released in 2021, however, this time by Mikhail van Elk et al. Uh, this time looking at the effects of psilocybin microdosing on awe and aesthetic experiences. This was a pre-registered field and lab-based study. So to give a little bit of a background to this study, in this study, first participants took part in a microdosing workshop where they then volunteered to self-administer the placebo or psilocybin mushrooms for three weeks, with both participants and researchers blinded to the groups. After the first three weeks, a two-week break occurred where the conditions were reversed, so someone who was initially taking the placebo pill would now take psilocybin mushrooms pills and continued this for another three weeks. Twice in each three-week period, participants visited the lab at the University of Amsterdam to test for the effects of microdosing. Standardised measures of awe were used with participants reporting their experiences in response to artwork or short videos. Can you tell us a little bit more about the results of this study, please, Torsten? Yeah, as this was a study in... Um... It was presumed that these guys were psychologically healthy as they experimental subjects. And uh, so uh, what they tried to do here is they had two blocks. One block took, uh, one group took the drug during the first uh, few weeks and the other one later on. So the one group got the first, at first the placebo uh, capsules and later on the psilocybin capsules and the opposite around. So the first group got the first uh, at first psilocybin and then later on placebo. So you could kind of compare these two timeframes, so to say, uh, uh, against each other. And what they have found is there was practically no difference in between these uh, groups. So it was their conclusion that you don't further creativity by taking a low dose of psilocybin. Um, you also have no significant mood changes 
um, you also have no more flexibility in your brain, what has been suggested before. And also there were no um, uh, effect measures in respect to lowering anxiety or lowering depression. What uh, we have to mention as a kind of limitation by giving these results is that first off, it seems that the first group got some effects which just make up a trend. They were not significant. It means uh, different above chance level, right? So the, these, could, these results, these trends are much more vulnerable to being just trends which given you an illusion. But it has to be mentioned that there was a little bit of difference in the first group. And what they have also found is that uh, the, the, uh, some experimental subjects of the second group have obviously broken the blind. Means they have looked at what is in the capsule and what not. This is because they took the capsules at home. They just did the measurement at the university department. And so there were some doubts about the second part of the study with, with the group which took the psilocybin the second time or, or during the later weeks. Um, and uh, so therefore, but the conclusion was there was no significant effect of very low doses of psilocybin on all the measures which they have done. And even the trend which has been mentioned um, is somewhat suspicious. You also, this is also a conclusion, you have to take very much care that you're not getting into these unblinding things that people open the capsules and stuff like that. You can control that easily in the lab, but not if the people take the capsules uh, to their homes and take them there. Um, what has been mentioned in the study's discussion is that this study is not really conclusive in respect to reducing symptoms of depression and anxiety. This is because uh, if you want to look out for these uh, symptoms, it's better if you use people which have a more significant level of anxiety and depression than healthy humans. It's all, you know, if you would ask me, are you depressed right now? I would say no, but if I would do some measures, I might be on a, in a subtle way, I might be somewhat depressed these days because I'm overwhelmed and stuff like that. You know, you might also get some anxiety from some situational circumstances and stuff like that. So that might be reduced, but this is not a very consistent thing. Your anxiety is not very consistent as well as the effects on that can't be measured in a healthy person which has much more small mood changes than an, uh, a depressive person, for example. And so therefore the authors concluded that their results do not have, really have implications in respect to uh, patients possibly treated with microdosing for their anxiety or depression. Really, really interesting points there. Thank you, Torsten. Um, but just to bring up something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, which is about breaking blind, which really does seem to be one of the biggest problems uh, when it comes to microdosing studies. But I think we've also discussed that with any study to do with psychedelics, it can be incredibly hard to find a placebo, whether active or not, for them. Um, so just to give a little bit of a background about some of the breaking blind in this study, which as Torsen said, was where the participants knew which group they were in and they correctly guessed which study they were. 
In the first journal, the writers suggest that the small significant differences they found that did favour the microdosing group could be explained by breaking blind. And in the Van Elk study just discussed, two-thirds of participants broke blind in their experimental conditions, with their correctly guessing which group they were in. What's quite interesting here is that they actually noted that the participants guessed which group they were in using subtle physiological side effects, such as sweating, heart rate, or a dry mouth. So these bring up some quite interesting points about what actually makes a good placebo for these, um, trying to match those physiological respects as well as these emotional ones. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question for this one. What would make the perfect placebo for a methodological study like the two we've discussed? And what approaches can we take to get closer towards that perfect placebo? Yeah. This is a real problem, but the only thing as a scientist, you can do a placebo controlled study. It means you have an inactive placebo in this, um, in this kind of research with microdosing, where you are looking out for very subtle effects. You're not looking out for lowering your blood pressure by 20 or 30 percent or stuff like that. That's easy to measure somewhat, but here it's much more complex. What one could imagine is that you could compare the microdosing condition where you give the person, let's say 15 mics of LSD, you could compare that to let's say three milligrams of amphetamine because you really, from the uh, research in the past, you may know really well what uh, amphetamine is doing to the psyche of your experimental subjects and to their measures which you are giving, giving to them. Right, so that the the mood would be a little bit more euphoric and stuff like that, so that you can um, compare inactive placebo, let's say a three arm study, inactive placebo, a few milligrams of amphetamine, and uh, let's say fifteen mics of LSD. So that would give you a much better comparison, to my eyes. Uh, and also the people are much more suggested that they might get something which they don't know about. You know, the amphetamine or the inactive placebo or the LSD. So that's also a better blinding condition so that the people are kind of confused about what they might get. Yeah. And I'm and assuming let that's... Me, let me just um, mention a very bizarre study which has been conducted. It was uh, a fantasy study which I have created, but uh, later on I found that I'm not doing the wrong thing, telling the story in my lectures, but it has been, all, it has been in fact conducted. This was a study, quite simple design, 35, uh, 70 patients with a pain condition, serious pain condition. And they were offered to partake in a study where they were given a placebo as well as morphine by infusion in a bed. Okay, so they, everybody was instructed about the study in the environment. So the nurses, the doctors, the patients, they did their informed consent. They were kind of having questions to the doctors. They these were cleared up and stuff like that. But what happened, unknown to everybody participating in the study, was that somebody changed the morphine uh, uh, infusions against placebo. So it means 
everybody of the study team and the patient was expecting to have half of the population on the morphine, half of the population not. But there was nobody, in fact, on the morphine because that was stolen kind of or exchanged. And so what happened is that after 30 minutes of the infusion, exactly half of the population got the morphine response and the other half not. There you can see that the what they called at that point in 1985, that study was published, they call it the clinician's expectancy manipulates the placebo effect. And in the, with this study, you can easily see that the placebo response can be enormous. And so we as scientists have to be very careful to kind of as much exclude this effect from the real effect. And with this experiment um, published by Gracely et al. in, in uh, 1985 in The Lancet, um, you can see how much uh, external influences can determine a response to a pharmacological agent. And we know with the psychedelics set, set and setting, uh, how much uh, the, the drug reaction is influenced by your inner uh, uh, state and by the environmental stimuli in respect to other people, in respect to the atmosphere, in respect to lighting and everything. And also your intention for doing what you're doing is also altering. And so it means it's much more context sensitive than for example, a blood pressure medication where you can much easier uh, throw out the placebo effect out of your statistics. Yeah. But in this case, it's a very complex matter. And so if you ask me for an ideal study, I can't tell you one. This three-arm study could be an alternative. What could be also interesting and what has been done by Beershard et al. is to give different doses of LSD in comparison to placebo. So they had 6.5, they had 13, and they had 20, I think. So that is an interesting thing to compare these things, especially if it is a crossover study. So it means every experimental subject get all three doses and the placebo. You, you also have to um, put in regard that there are some learning effects also involved. So science is a complex matter, sometimes not really realized by laymen. Yeah, that's fascinating. Those are two really interesting uh, methodological that approaches. That's just a funny that, study, isn't it? Yeah, Man. study. Yeah, that's mind-boggling. Yeah. And I suppose a lot of it kind of will come back to the, I suppose what we could call now the role of expectation yeah. in the effects of stuff. So yeah. I know the Dr. And, it, and, it seems, and it seems from what we know now from the most uh, recent uh, studies in respect to microdosing, that the expectancy effects is guiding uh, the pattern of reactions of the people, it seems. And there we are back at homeopathy somewhat, because you also have a very much of a placebo effect involved. So, which is also in the medical terminology called unspecific healing effects. And if you can provide a ritual, a procedure, which suggests to the patient that there's something in a positive in respect to his healing is going on, then he might believe in it and might come out with a better outcome. Very, very, no, very, very oh. valid point. 
Um, but yeah, I have no doubt that the role of expectation and the placebo effect will be thoroughly researched within the next 20 years as they are proving to be, well, incredibly, incredibly important within the scientific literature. But yeah. uh, aside from what I hypothesize in the future, I'd rather hear from you. So from what we've discussed, the science is skeptical when it comes to microdosing. But can you imagine a significant effect from microdosing in any way? Yeah, um, um, yeah. there are a few things to say about that. So one thing is that uh, the, the people, the most serious ones I've spoken with about microdosing and, it, and its effects and which have tried that, and they told me that in some situations it gives you another set. It means your mindset might be altered in a certain way and it might be a little bit more wider, a little bit more open, stuff like that. Even if that is, might be very subtle, it could be a real effect. Who knows? What I've also seen is that the two people which I've spoken to, which have microdosed every third day on, uh, on a long-term long scale, uh, these guys have reported to me that they felt worse and worse and worse during these months. And both of them were eager not to do that again. And they felt kind of lousy. They felt irritated. They felt a little bit in between, a little bit anxious, a little bit depressed, a little bit irritated, a little bit confused, kind of that stuff. And so I think in the long run, there might be in the long run, there might be um, not a very good effect of microdosing. And uh, another piece of evidence came from Fadiman's surveys. And uh, because he reported that a very few patients have done it for a few months on a regular basis. These were terminal cancer patients. They did it out of despair, I guess. And what is interesting to know is that during the first 30 days, nothing changed. Uh, later on, from day 35 to day 50, uh, the people got into much more mood changes than usual. Means in respect to both, di uh, uh, both directions. So they got worse and they got better. The next day they got worse. Three days later they got better. Then a day later they got worse again. So it's just the variability of your mood which might change with these long-term kind of effects. And to keep you informed about the latest developments, there are a few companies which are trying to do uh, experiments with microdosing in patients with uh, mental health conditions, depression, as well as anxiety. I'm not very optimistic, to be honest, that that might go in the right direction, give very positive results. But as we can see with these long-term even if that's just anecdotal evidence, we might think, okay, if these long-term takers of microdosing uh, register some significant changes, so why should these people not, the mentally health, uh, health uh, unhealthy people? Um, however, there's also the development of tolerance, so the organism adapts to certain substances, especially poisons, um, and so, uh, especially with LSD, um, you get tolerant in a day or two. 
And so if you take it on the long run, there might be no effect on the organisms that could be also true. And that these people were just auto-suggesting as something to themselves. For example, I recently came across uh, a cluster headache patient who has treated himself with uh, LSD in the range of one to 200 mics every fifth day for one and a half year. He got a lot uh, done in respect to the betterment of his cluster headache, but he told me that after three weeks, he didn't feel anything from these higher doses of LSD anymore, which is kind of contradicting scientific studies, but there are no scientific studies of that kind, giving higher doses every fifth day. So we don't know what really will happen if you take microdoses in the long run. And another quick point there, Torsten, if I may follow on is, are there any side effects that we can see from microdosing? Yeah, we could hypothesize that there are no side effects because there are no effects. That may be not quite true. Some people develop kind of anxiety, especially if it comes to a dose range very near the perceptual range where you can perceive the effects. And there has been speculation in respect to um, uh, tissue alteration, which can be seen uh, with substances kind of similar to LSD on a pharmacological level. In some patients, uh, in the long run, if they take it on a daily basis, uh, some tissue alterations, which can also be serious, can be seen. And we know today uh, that uh, this is induced by a constant stimulation of the 5-2-HA receptor, uh, HT to a receptor. And uh, so they have thought about that that might happen with microdosing. But from my expertise view, and I have a lot of knowledge also about these tissue alterations, it's not a real danger to my eyes. Yeah. I see. That's it. Thank you very much, Torsten. So this kind of brings us towards the end of the podcast. We've discussed a lot of interesting topics and literature. And I think if one thing's clear is there needs to be a lot more literature and science going into the understandings and underpinnings of microdosing, the placebo effect and the role of expectations. However, I will finish us off here. Thank you very much for listening to the end of the Psychedelics in Medicine podcast with me, Ben Clayden, and our wonderful guest, Dr. Torsten Passy. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and your preferred streaming platform for new episodes every month. Join us next time where we carry on our conversations with LSD, looking at LSD derivatives. Thanks again.